Amen. Good morning. Please be seated. Thank you for being with us this morning. My name is Craig Thompson, and I'm senior pastor here, and it is our privilege to have you to gather with us. I'm going to ask for just a point of order quickly before I jump in to thank you all for your support um, and uh, just to express my appreciation to our staff. As most of you are aware, last Sunday morning I was planning to preach, and about 9.35 I got a call that said my dad was being taken into uh, uh, open-heart surgery. So at 9.45, Adam got tagged in, and uh, Kevin and, and Adam Buster was teaching, I, th- I thought, so I didn't bother him. But uh, um, I do appreciate so much your prayers and your support. My dad is doing well. Um, he's coming home today from the hospital, so I do appreciate that. But thank you so much for just, uh, I didn't think another thing about y'all, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, I didn't have to worry. I just got in the truck and left, and, and uh, everything has been okay ever since, but thank you so much for your support, and especially to our um, our pastoral staff and others. Uh, Diana, make sure that nothing, nothing, I don't screw anything up even when I'm not in the office, and so I'm just grateful uh, for all of you and our deacons who step in and, and make sure that everything gets taken care of uh, in my absence. So um, thank you so much for being a good church family, and I, I do mean that, and I just wanted to take a moment and thank you for that. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 10. We are going to be talking about marriage. Um, I do want to reiterate what Adam said about Vacation Bible School. Um, some of you may not be aware, but VBS is a really big deal for us around here. We will plan to have 200, 250 kids here during Vacation Bible School. We need all hands on deck. It takes us, um, it's, we need about 100 volunteers to make VBS run right. So um, we need you. If you're a member here, um, we need you. If you're not a member here, we need you to join because we need you. So, um, uh, which brings me around to the next thing. Uh, our life, our, our next steps class was canceled last week. I do apologize. I don't apologize. It just happened. It's what needed to be um, as a result of me being gone. We will reschedule that as soon as possible. However, uh, if you are just chomping at the bit to join our church. If you'll call me, I will come to your house, and we will do our Next Steps class right there, or we can do it in my office if you don't want to have to vacuum. So um, we can certainly do that. I will make time for you um, at at your convenience for that. So please uh, know that. Also, Life Group Fellowships are next Sunday, so there are no Sunday evening services scheduled for next Sunday, so we can set aside time for our life groups to have some time together. If your life group has not scheduled anything, I would encourage you to do something. Um, And if you're not aware of what your life group is doing, contact your life group leader. And if you don't have a life group, then I'm going to tell you what, right now would be a perfect time to jump in so that you can find somewhere to go and fellowship. So I hope that you'll do that. All right, that's the announcements that are out of the way. There's, there's a lot of things going on. Pay attention. There's a VBS meeting. There's a bridal shower today. There's all kind of things. And there's, there's egg hunts coming up and uh, senior adult breakfast coming up. Uh, we are busy. But, folks, we want to get so busy that we miss out on what God has to say to us, especially in his word. So Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. If you would stand with me in honor of God's word. Now, I want you to pay attention because this is God's word. And that's what matters more than anything else. And he, this is Jesus, he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we wrestle through what are difficult passages of Scripture, that, Father God, you'd give us the humility to appreciate and, and, and accept your word as it is. Lord God, you'd give us grace as we encounter others. And, Lord God, that you would remind us above all else that the cross of Jesus Christ is enough. And it is there at the foot of the cross that we are all equal. Lord God, show us how we may stand different from our culture. Lord God, how we may shine as sons of God. In Christ's name, amen. Listen, I was supposed to preach this message last week. And uh, last Saturday night is when we got the call that my dad was having some chest pains and they were going to be running some tests and so I, I didn't rest well on Saturday night in anticipation of of uh of just where all he was going and and I I, I prayed Saturday morning probably about four o'clock in the morning when I woke up and and I asked everybody that that I saw in between then and and uh, the time I was supposed to be here to just be praying for me because I I wanted to make sure that I was really just controlled my tongue this is a sensitive and difficult topic and I, I wanted to be able to treat it well and I was asking people just to pray and then the Lord gave me a whole week to wait for it so here we are this morning, I got plenty of rest um, in anticipation of this message. Folks, I, I want to begin by saying that um, these, these are difficult passages of Scripture. These are difficult things for us to wrestle with. This is why we preach through books of the Bible here, because when we preach through books of the Bible, we're forced to wrestle with things that we might avoid because they're a little uncomfortable. We're forced to wrestle with things that, 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 that might be easy to just move on past. But this is, is important because Jesus talked about it. It's important because it's included in multiple places in God's word. Jesus elevated the role of marriage beyond what was common in his day. Now, it could be easy for us to look at this passage of scripture, okay, and to assume as, listen, we, we tend to assume that in the past things were always better, okay? We tend to assume that in the past things were always better. We also tend to assume that once somebody gets old, everything is all going to be okay. Well, the reality is that it doesn't matter how old you are, you need Jesus, right? Old people don't get, don't get righteous when they get older. You understand that? And, and I, don't, I don't say that to be silly. I'm just saying some people seem to believe that, right? Well, if a person's 90 years old, then everything must be okay. No, a 90-year-old needs Jesus as much as a 9-year-old does. Don't ever miss that. We also can't assume that how things were in the past was necessarily better. We, we, can, we can sort of have this sort of chronological nostalgia and we can assume that back in the day is when all the things were really good, you know? Back then. I see this a lot in our day and time right now as it relates to, to, to um, safety issues. Now, uh, there's a lot of scary things in the news today. There's a very scary, terrible thing that happened in Columbia just this weekend. Uh, it just broke my heart to see the death of a young woman in, in a senseless act. Um, and, 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 and we watch so much news and it's constantly in our face. And so we want to go back to the good old safer days of 1980, back when the world was so much safer and better. But, but the truth of the matter is, do you know that 1980 was much more dangerous time in our world than 2019? 
See, we, some of y'all still don't, y'all don't even believe me. Right now you're going, whatever, Craig. FBI crime statistics tell us that we are living in perhaps the safest time in the history of the world. The safest time in the history of the world, and yet we are scared to death. Because we assumed that everything was better way back when. Folks, we can walk into a passage of Scripture like this and assume that when Jesus talked, he was talking into a culture that was so different from ours, and it's difficult for it to relate. That Jesus was speaking to a people who had a, an incredibly high view of marriage. And as a result, Jesus was just saying what was common. Well, the reality is that Jesus was speaking right now into a culture that had degraded marriage to such a place that if we were to look at Matthew's account, which we will in a few minutes, that even Jesus' disciples heard him preach about marriage and divorce and pulled him aside and said, Jesus, you can't be serious about all this. Folks, I want you to know that marriage is important and it matters. I want you to know that it is set apart and special. I want you to know that you're not playing on the JV team if you're single. Because the Apostle Paul has some incredibly powerful things to say about the unique opportunities that a single person has. It can feel very alienating sometimes when you're the single person in the room and we're talking about marriage. I don't want you to feel alienated in this place today. Instead, what, what I want some of you to do is to maybe snicker under your breath at all the struggle that we married people have to try and make things work. And I want you to consider the incredible opportunity you have to serve the Lord unencumbered. You don't have to worry about all the other people. You just got to worry about you and Jesus, and you and Jesus can be just fine. I also want to make sure that as we walk into this this morning, that for those of you for whom this might be a difficult passage of Scripture, don't, 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 don't cut me off. Don't shut me out right now, okay? And let's make sure we get all the way to the end. We're going to come together as God's people around God's table in just a little while. And we come together as God's people around God's table, we can be reminded that that blood of Jesus that was shed was necessary for the remissions of sins for all of mankind. And when we gather right here, we gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, every single one of us, without hope, save for the cross of Jesus Christ. You understand, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so we come here this morning, not to elevate some and throw others in a hole, we come here this morning to talk about Jesus' words on marriage and why it matters. Someone said once, it's been attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but might not have been him, that the most extraordinary thing in the whole wide world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. I like that. Now, whether he wrote it or not, whether Chester did, we don't know. But it is true. And it's as true today as it would have been during G.K. Chesterton's life at the turn of the 20th century. It's as true today as it would have been in 1750 or 1698 or 1492. It's as true as it has been since the creation of the world. Marriage is a good thing. And the extraordinary kind of marriages. Listen, I want you to pay close attention. The extraordinary kind of marriages only look extraordinary on the outside. See, on the inside, those extraordinary kind of marriages look just pretty ordinary. Those extraordinary kind of marriages with extraordinary husbands and extraordinary wives, when you get into their house, they still have ordinary old recliners and ordinary old dinners. 
They still have ordinary old struggles with their children and ordinary old disagreements around the table. The extraordinary marriages aren't extraordinary on the inside. They're just extraordinary in their willingness to commit for the long haul. And on the outside, they begin to look like beautiful jewels in God's kingdom. This morning, we want to consider God's intention in marriage. And I want to encourage you, I hope, with this reminder. You're probably a lot more normal than you think you are. Your marriage is probably a lot more normal than you think it is. Do you know that the pastor and his wife have an extraordinary marriage? Do y'all know that? Some of y'all believe that. That we have this sacred marriage that's set up on this platform that all of y'all should jump on board and follow. Let me tell you about this sacred marriage where everything goes right. Okay? We drive to Spartanburg on Friday because my, my father had a heart attack, so we go up Friday night for everybody to see him, and we get up on Saturday morning with one of our kids running a fever. That's how awesome our marriage is. That's how incredible our family is. We're up there to take care of somebody who's had open-heart surgery, and a kid wakes up with a fever, right? And here's the way we handled it. We immediately spent six hours in prayer, and we loved one another, and we held hands, right? And we laid hands, and great things happened. No, we looked at each other and went, are you kidding me? What in the world? Seriously? We don't have time for this? What if it's the flu? That was the boom. The, the great faith from the pastor, right? What if it's the flu? Here we are in my father's house. He's not home yet. What if we're spreading flu germs all over the place where the, the, the heart patient is fixing to come home? Listen, folks, we're far, far from extraordinary. So I stand up here with you to preach God's word as a traveler down that path, a very ordinary marriage. But that very ordinary marriage is a beautiful thing in God's kingdom. And I don't want you to miss that. Your very ordinary faith is a beautiful thing in God's kingdom. We live in a celebrity-driven world, and in this celebrity-driven world, everybody believes that you've got to do something superhuman and super extraordinary just so that you could matter. But can I tell you that you are big in God's kingdom if you'll just focus on doing the very small things of loving him and loving others. You can have the kind of marriage that storybooks are written about if you'll sit across the table and eat dinner with one another and choose to love one another even in the hard days. Because if you'll do that at year 15 and at year 22 and at year 27 and 38, you'll look up one day and you'll have one of those 60-year-long marriages. And somebody's going to say, what's the secret? And your secret is going to be that one of you had a sewing room and the other one had a shop. And every once in a while, you need to go out there. <laughs> you better be careful. But what does God's word have to say to us about divorce? When we get into this passage of scripture, we have, some, we have a lot of things going. All right, we got a lot of things that are happening right here. We got Jesus walking. The Bible says he left from there. Where did he leave from? He left from wherever he was. We're not going to focus too much upon that, but we want to focus on where he was going. He went down to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds there begin to gather. Now, Jesus has walked down into John the Baptist's stomping ground. This is where he is. He's kind of returned back from where he was. Remember, Jesus was here a while back. He got baptized. John's been arrested and killed by this point. It's important for us to remember that John was arrested and killed because John had challenged the relationship that Herod had with his wife. Herod had divorced his wife. Because he had fallen in love, lust would probably be the better word, with his sister's wife, who had also divorced her husband 
or excuse me, with his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. They had fallen in with one another, and so Herod left his wife, divorced her, and, and, and this woman divorced her husband, which was illegal in the time, but Herod's the king, so he can make whatever he wants happen, and boom, the two of them get together, and this is their new happy marriage. Sister-in-law and brother-in-law have worked it out so they can be together. And here Jesus walks down into John the Baptist's place, and Jesus gets cornered by the Pharisees who come up to him, and the Bible says, in order to test him. In order to test him. How many of you have ever asked a question in order to test somebody? How many of you have ever done this to your parents? How many of you have ever tried to share the gospel with somebody and only had them ask you a question in order to test you? In order to test him. And the Bible says that they looked at Jesus and they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Folks, the first thing we need to focus on when we think about something like marriage and divorce is that we ask the right questions. We need to always work to ask the right questions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul tells us that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The big question we're wrestling with this this morning is, is it beneficial? Is it beneficial? Are the questions that we ask or the actions that we do, are they beneficial? Not can I, but should I? Not, not even should I, but is this the best thing for me to do? These Pharisees didn't walk up to Jesus and ask an easy question. They walked up and asked him a very difficult and challenging question. Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians 6.12 about what is sexual immorality and what is acceptable or appropriate in Christian experience. When we consider our sin and our morality, our questions tend to revolve around what's acceptable, but Paul cuts the legs out from under it and says, let's get it past acceptability and talk about best. These Pharisees come to Jesus and they want to ask, what is acceptable now, it's important for us to ask, understand they're asking their own question at least two or three different kinds of ways. Now, we know from Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees have been in league with the Herodians to trap Jesus before. What's that mean? That means the Pharisees aren't just on their own. The Pharisees have Herod's people in with them. Remember the same Herod who had John the Baptist killed? If we go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we see they've been in league together before. So Jesus is, 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 is trying to avoid a trap from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Culturally, we also need to understand that Jesus is in Herod's territory, all right? So this isn't just that they're seeking to trap him in sort of out-of-the-way kind of place. He's in Herod's backyard. Jesus is on Capitol Hill, right? He's on Capitol Hill, and the president's people are seeking to corner him and answer a question. And they've got microphones stuck in his face, so we can make sure that we've got it all recorded, we also have to understand that as they asked this question, the issue of divorce was contentious in first century Judaism. There were two different camps that held competing views on the interpretation of Moses in Deuteronomy 24.1. Now, understand, there was nobody that doubted whether or not Moses wrote Deuteronomy, nor was there anyone who doubted whether or not what it said. Deuteronomy 24.1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out. Okay? So this is what Jesus is going to do. Jesus responds to their question with a question. What did Moses say? That's his question. What did Moses say to you? And they say, well, Moses said we could write a certificate of divorce. Everybody believed that. Everybody knew that was true. We know that's true because God's word teaches us that. Right? 
Jesus is not sad. He's going to take that and, and, and ratchet it up a notch here in a minute. But understand there, there were two competing views. There was the followers of, of Shammai. They argued. Y'all just stick with me, by the way. Don't, don't tune me out. We're going to come back around. But get me, let, me, let me get the legs under this. All right, We're going to build the house, and then we're going to, we're going to move into it in a minute. No one doubted the words of Moses. For, for the followers of Shammai, they argued that something morally shameful was in view. So that when Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found indecency in her. They're arguing about what is indecency. The followers of Shammai argued that the woman would have had to have committed adultery or, or perhaps some significant failure to observe the Jewish law. All right? Now, many scholars believe that the reason that a certificate of divorce was given was to protect these women, right? It was was not so that, um, to make it easy, it was so that these men could not sort of create a revolving door of women in and out of their house. He says, if you're going to get her out of your house, then write her a certificate of divorce. Don't just stick her out on the street by herself. You separate her from yourself legally, so that she could be taken in by another man, so that she could, she could continue to live her life. Now, the followers of, of, of Shammai, they argued that something morally shameful, right? But then there's the followers of Hillel. The followers of Hillel argued that in addition to any moral fault, anything, and, and y'all, some of y'all are going to think that I'm making this up. I just want, you can read Josephus. You don't have to take me. You can go all the way back to first century Jewish historians. Followers of Hillel argued that in addition to any moral fault, anything which caused annoyance or embarrassment to the husband was a legitimate grounds for divorce. If she burned breakfast, she was done. If she talked, if she talked too loud. Now, a woman to divorce her husband was illegal. But for those who followed this position, they had created a loophole in the law that allowed a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. Now, can I tell you that this is where legalism leads? This is where legalism leads. This is why in legalistic Muslim cultures, we've not done away with brothels, but they can get married as they walk in the door because they need to make sure that it is a legal sexual union and they can get divorced as they walk out the door. In legalistic Catholic circles, we still reject divorce, but what if we created annulment so that we could create a way around it? Understand, legalism creates loopholes because we're always looking for a way. Now, it's with this contention in the background that Jesus is asked, what does he think about divorce? But Jesus quickly turns the question on its head. The Pharisees were asking the wrong question. They wanted to know if it was okay to divorce for any reason. But see, Jesus sort of pushes it around. And, and, and maybe a better question they should have asked is, is there any reason that a man and a wife should not remain married? See, the Pharisees are going, hey, how can I get a divorce? And Jesus is saying, why should you get a divorce? Is there any good reason? Rather than offer an answer, he says, what did Moses say? Folks, as we consider the place of marriage in our culture and within the church, we need to make sure that we're asking the right questions. Not trying to figure out what are the acceptable ways to get out of this union, not the acceptable ways to get out of this commitment that we've made before God and man, but instead asking the question of how is it that I can make this marriage permanent? How is it that I can do everything in my power to make this marriage 
work. If we begin assuming that marriage is permanent as God intended in Genesis 2, then our questions change. But folks, let's also be honest here. The Pharisees didn't just ask the question of Jesus because they want to know where he stood. The Pharisees asked this question in Herod's backyard because they wanted to make sure that they had backed him into a corner. So when they asked Jesus if divorce for any reason is acceptable, they're trying to put Jesus into bad graces. Folks, we need to ask the right questions. We're going to talk in just a minute about raising the bar within culture. But for now, I want to make sure that we're asking the right questions about marriage and sexual morality. Not because, not because we... we let me back up. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that wrong. I want to make sure that we ask the right questions about marriage and sexual morality because we have a desire to honor the Lord, not because we're trying to trap people in their words. You understand? There's a difference between us trying to trap people in what they say and us seeking to honor the Lord. Folks, in God's word, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ doesn't bring condemnation. He brings conviction of sin. It is Satan who brings condemnation. We, as God's people, should be willing to speak God's truth so that conviction may come. But we don't condemn. It's not in our job description. The devil brings condemnation. In Christ there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we've been set free. Folks, we need to be willing to ask the right questions by going to God, by going to God's people and God's word and asking questions to learn, not to entrap or abuse. Jesus was seeking to be backed into, or excuse me, they, they were trying to back Jesus into a corner. Can, can we just back out of this conversational marriage and, and take it at about 10,000 feet for just a minute and say that when we ask questions about marriage and sexuality within the church, our goal should always be to honor the Lord and to build up God's kingdom and not to tear other people apart. Can I, can, will you hear me say that? If, if we're talking about marriage and sexuality, our goal should be to honor Christ and build up his church, not tear people apart. One of the things that breaks my heart is when I preach on homosexuality, and folks, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, it's not the way it once was. But I used to could bring up homosexuality, and the minute that I spoke against it, I'd get 478 amens in the church. That's right! Folks, my question when it comes to us dealing with these things that are sin... It's whether or not our goal is to be right and to be victorious or our goal is to honor the Lord Jesus and build up Christ's church. We still call sin, sin. But we do it as best we can in the way that Jesus did. Loving and compassionate. As a friend who welcomes sinners, welcomes them even to his own table where he has made a way for them to be united with him through the cross of Jesus. The Pharisees said, Jesus, is it okay for any reason? And Jesus said, what did Moses say? Don't, don't back me into a corner. Folks, let me urge you this morning. Ask the right questions about marriage and sexuality. If you're in here today and you're struggling in your marriage, let me urge you to ask the right questions. Not how can I get out of this, but Lord God, how in the world can I stay in it? Lord, who could you send me to help us walk this journey, to walk this path? God, how can I be strengthened in these hard days? Ask the right questions. Number two this morning, take your cues from God's Word. When he was confronted by the Pharisees, Jesus turned them straight to God's Word. Remember, when it comes to things the Bible speaks clearly about, then our opinion really doesn't matter. 
Now, as it relates to divorce, we will see there are some areas where theologians and Bible interpreters differ, but for the most part, we can all agree. We can agree about what? We can agree, first of all, that it was God's intention that marriage be permanent. Okay? We can agree. Jesus said that. It wasn't that way from the beginning. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus doesn't appeal to the law. Jesus appeals to creation, to God's created intention. This one flesh union is mysterious, but if it does nothing else, it helps us to understand that marriage is more than a signature on a piece of paper. Jesus explained the verse this way, what God has joined together, let not not man separate. Jesus said it is to be permanent. When we think about marriage, we need to run to God's word. Marriage is intended as a union between one man and one woman for as long as they both shall live. The Pharisees were looking for a loophole, but rather than focus on the loophole, Jesus focused, you ready, on holiness. On holiness. Young people, when we think about what it is to live sexually pure lives, adults, when we think about what it is to live sexually pure lives, we're usually looking for the loophole when what we should be focusing on is holiness. Not how far can I go, but how far can I cling to Jesus? How can I pursue holiness well so we need to think biblically take our cues from god's word right we need to always come back here when somebody wants to know what i believe about marriage it's got to be here and if it's not here it just doesn't count you understand if it's not here it just doesn't count but i got to use all of it i can't just take the ones i like husbands we don't get to cling to those verses that say wives submit to your husband period I try it sometimes. My wife knows God's word, so I'm in a world of hurt. Because we are told that we are to that wives are to submit to their husbands. What are husbands supposed to do? Love their wife. How? As Christ loved the church, giving his life for her, sanctifying her with his blood. Men, what's that mean? That means, yes, the Bible says she should submit to you, but it also says you should give everything you got to make her better than she was when you got married. She should be a better woman because she's married to you. Do you know that? She should, is she? Because I'm going to tell you something. If she's not, you better stop looking at her and start looking in the mirror. That hurts, doesn't it? But see, we got to take all of this word, every word of it. Instead of seeing how much we can get away with, we run to God's word and see how far can I go to honor God's decrees and God's plans. Run to God's word. See, that first point was super long. I told y'all we'd build the house and move into it. Third, this morning, we want to raise the bar within our culture. Now, in Matthew 19, there's an interesting turn of events. If you want to, you can turn there. This is the same, same experience. Mercy sakes. I didn't mark my page. I can't find it. Matthew 19. Disciples hear Jesus lay the ground rules for marriage. Then in verse 10... Of chapter 19, this is, listen, this is the same, this is Jesus in the same place doing the same thing, but Matthew gives us a, perhaps a more full account. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Folks, you want to talk about how revolutionary Jesus' words were? His closest friends and, and students hear him preach and teach about divorce, and they say, if it's that big a deal, then it would be better just to stay single. And Jesus says, well, some of you it would be. That's kind of a paraphrase. 
Jesus says, not everyone can receive this. Only those to whom is given. But look at what happened above that in verse in chapter 19. In verse 7, he says, They said to him, Why did Moses then command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said, Because of your hardness of hearts. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here we have that, that, that one of the, the, the few ways where, mar- where a divorce is justified in God's word, because of adultery. The disciples hear him say, if she's cheating on you, then it, if you need to divorce, you can do that. And yet they still go, whoa, 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 that's far too hard. The disciples are going, Jesus, we like the part where if she burns our eggs, we can kick her out. This is too hard. What's in it for me? Folks, we've got to raise the bar within our culture. In the Jewish culture of the first century, marriage was not held in high regard. Perhaps some have suggested the questions about marriage in first century Judaism revolve more around what's in it for me. And how may I serve my spouse and honor the Lord. Folks, our modern society shows us what can happen when a provision for damage control comes to be regarded as a right or even a norm. Let's back out. Moses granted that a certificate of divorce could be written, not that it had to be written. See, there's a significant difference right there. Right? It could be written, not that it had to be written. There was nothing in here that said, if this happens, you have to separate. That grounds for divorce was a, was a pressure relief valve. It was an emergency valve. It was put into place because God knows that we are sinful people. And look, since the beginning of time, God has made a way, even for us in our sin, to continue to live in this world. For Adam and Eve, he sewed together for them clothes of skins. They put together, what they do? They put together little fig leaves, and that didn't work out. God said, I'm going to make it better. He didn't say your sin is okay, did he? He never said it's all right. He never said, I'm proud of you for doing this. He said, we're going to figure a way to move forward. Because in his grace, in his grace and in his forbearance, God overlooks our sin until such a time as we may come to Christ. Now, there will come a day of reckoning. Do you understand that? There will come a day of reckoning for our sin. Now, that issue, that, 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 that opportunity for divorce was a provision for damage control. And folks, understand this is primarily a provision for damage and control of women. If we continue to read all those, uh, all those laws surrounding marriage and divorce in the Old Testament, a man was not allowed to put his wife out and then marry somebody else and then go take her back. He wasn't able to kind of keep her on the side and put her up on the shelf and just continue to rotate her back into his house. Nor was he allowed to just stick her out there and not divorce her, just leave her out there to starve to death. Because in that culture, a woman, a woman needed to either be married to a man or to live under her father's care so that she could be provided for. All right? One of the only other opportunities would have been for her to submit herself to prostitution or slavery. God provides protection for these women in this case. But when 
the provision for damage control comes to be regarded as a right or even a norm, then marriage is no longer upheld as a beautiful picture of permanence in God's kingdom. See, the picture of divorce pain in the scripture is a picture of a terrible, damaging thing. Divorce is the undoing of what God has joined together. Divorce is the undoing of what God has joined together. So then what do we do with divorce and remarriage? All of y'all are sitting here going, are you going to get to the point? <laughs> what do we do with divorce and remarriage? At first, as a church, we need to be careful that we don't take our marching orders on marriage or morality from the culture around us. This is the only place where we get it. You hear me? This is the only place where we get it. See, Jesus was in Herod's backyard. The king had spoken with his own marriage and with the death of John the Baptist. So Jesus avoided politics and focused on being nice to other people, right? No. Jesus jumped right into the political moment with both feet. He jumped into the cultural may you head first. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus stands on Capitol Hill and says, no, y'all know that ain't right. Jesus says, if you've read God's word, there's no way that you actually believe what you're living by. When Angel and I were in Indonesia 12 years ago, we heard a story about a man eating a short-legged water buffalo. Y'all ever heard me tell this story? Y'all know y'all ever seen a short legged? You ever seen a, like a long legged water buffalo? You know what that is? It's a water buffalo. Just go with it. Just water buffalo. Really? Come on. They got little horns. Y'all are terrible. Thank you. Some of you, our middle schoolers know what a water buffalo is. The rest of y'all are in a world of hurt. So there's there. Some of our missionaries have been invited to a home of a Muslim man, and uh, they were eating a meal with this man, and and he served them short legged water buffalo, and the man started eating. And he said, "Brother, I don't, I don't think you're supposed to be eating this." He said, yeah, it's good. It's short-legged water buffalo. This missionary is from Louisiana. He eats a little bit more. He looks at him. He says, listen, I'm so grateful for your hospitality. He says, but I ain't from here. He said, I'm, I'm from the south, and I know what this is. He said, this is pork, and you're not allowed to eat pork. He said, no, no, it's not a pig. It's a short-legged water buffalo. He said, it's a what? He said, I've never seen a short-legged one. He said, oh, you know, those little wild ones that run around with the little tushes coming out. Short-legged water buffalo. They got a wild hog problem in Indonesia, but if you'll just rename it, you can do whatever you want to do with it. Again, this is where legalism jumps in. Right? I'm going to make a way. Jesus looks at these folks and he looks at these, and these Pharisees, these men, and he goes, there's no way that you actually believe what you're saying right here. There's no way that you actually believe that if your wife burns the grits, that you're legally allowed to divorce her. Jesus looked at the Pharisees, he looked at King Herod, and he says, you're wrong. He says, culture, you're wrong. He says, marriage is God's design, it is to be held in the highest of esteem. So what do we do? First of all, we acknowledge that divorce is bad and is not God's intention. I've never, ever met anybody who's gone through a divorce that said, I'd love to do that all over again. Never met anyone who's gone through a divorce that said, I'd love to do that all over again. Angela had a family member that went through a divorce some years ago. And I'll never, her words continue to sting me. And she, she had, had gotten out of a terrible marriage. Terrible marriage. She'd been abused, she'd been neglected. And yet she said that on the back end of the finalization of her divorce, it was still so hard. 
Nobody says, let me do that all over again. Nobody wants that. Divorce is painful and it's bad. And the scripture says that it's not God's intention. But the scripture does allow a couple of instances where divorce and remarriage are allowed. In Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. How do we balance this with Mark 10? We acknowledge the tension. We seek to understand it. We don't, we don't know tone inflection. First of all, I, I can't tell you 100% how to balance I can just say that when God's word says it, we believe it. Period. So when Jesus says whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, it's my understanding that we need to read this this way. When Jesus marries, divorces his wife and marries another woman, commits adultery against her. We've got to read it in the cultural context. King Herod had divorced his wife so he could marry another woman. And this other woman had divorced her husband, which was illegal in the time. When Jesus says if a woman divorces her, her husband, he's speaking crazy talk to these men. The only way they could have understood it was if he was talking about this particular relationship. And he says they've committed adultery. We don't, we don't know tone inflection here, but it just seems to me, as I understand Matthew 19, 9, in light of, of all these other things, that there are two places where divorce and remarriage are allowed. First would be in the case of adultery. And second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, for a partner who has been abandoned, the brother or sister is not enslaved. He says, most theologians and pastors and interpreters of Scripture lump abuse and abandonment here as well. So abuse and abandonment are lumped into that, that together. Folks, well, I want you to know that where I come down is not the same place that everybody comes down. I, c- I can name for you theologians that line up where I do on this and theologians that line up where I don't. Well, what I can say to you is that we need to admit that divorce is bad and very bad, and that marriage is very, very good. But folks, we can admit that divorce is bad and at the same time acknowledge that it's not somehow the unpardonable sin. Marriage was intended to be permanent, but so was the innocence of mankind. Sin is a reality in our world, and in His grace, God has made allowances for our sins so that we might be reconciled. I know that some of this has seemed more like an academic lecture. I wanted to stick as close as I could to my notes this morning because I know that it's sensitive, and I want to make sure as best we could that, that, we were, that, that, that I was, was, was sensitive to all the people that are involved in this. So how do, how do we wrap all this up? We're going to come to the Lord's table in a minute, and, 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 and we're going to bring a good conclusion here. But, but here's what I want to say first of all. Are you married today? Honor the Lord by investing in that marriage today. Honor the Lord by investing in that marriage. Give it all you got. Give it all you've got. But as we look from this text to the Lord's Supper this morning, we need to be reminded that there is no sin, no sin, no sin. No sin. I, I want to jump up and down. Like I, I want to shout it. I read an article this week that said if we don't shout in church every once in a while, we might be sinning against God. I think it might be true. I just want to shout it. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus has not atoned for. I don't want anybody to walk out of here today feeling beat and abused. If the word of God has cut you this morning, then let me give you this word of hope. The blood of Jesus is a fountain of cleansing power for all who will call upon his name. Folks, for those of us who are happily married, we need to approach the Lord's Supper this morning with humility, recognizing that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus didn't... Jesus didn't just need to die for the divorced. Just because you found a way to stay married for the last 30 years doesn't make you a saint. You need Jesus just as much. 
Some of you hear a sermon on marriage and your heart hurts because you long for marriage. But I want to tell you what I said to you to begin with. Marriage is not for the varsity level and you're not JV just because you're not married. Mercy, you've got an incredible opportunity in God's kingdom. Without the encumbrances of spouse and family... And if you don't believe me, turn to 1 Corinthians 7 later and read what Paul has to say about it. As I talk about marriage, some of you in bad marriages sit here this morning and you long for more. And I want you to know that Jesus died to put marriages back together. Listen, you've not sinned so far that Jesus can't forgive you. Can I tell you that your marriage isn't so broken that God can't put it back together? If a husband and wife will seek the Lord together, I can assure you that he can repair any damages that have been brought about in a marriage. Some of you hurt as you hear this message because you're divorced. Some of you look back on your divorce and see it as justified. Some of you ran out of a relationship for your own safety. And some of you look to Jesus grateful that you were able to get out. Some of you, no doubt, look back and feel great remorse for what might have been an unjustified divorce. I want you to know that the Lord's Supper table is where we all gather. Forgiven sinners, remembering, remembering that Jesus didn't come to make the good better. He came to make the dead alive. To make the sick well. To forgive the sins of all mankind. We don't gather at this table as single or married or divorced and not divorced. We don't gather at this table as adulterer or not adulterer. We don't gather at this table as anything other than brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Because... The shed blood of Jesus that's represented by this juice that we'll drink in just a little while. See, this is the only blood that matters. And here we gather, not as rich and poor, not as black or white. We gather as brothers and sisters in Christ. Our children are going to come in in just a minute. And I don't know if they're out there just yet or not, but um, when they come in, it'll be a little bit of a distraction. Our deacons are going to come forward in just a moment as well. But I just want to share a quick story, and then we'll move forward. Um, my uh, my family's had quite a quite a scare this week, as you know, and so my brothers and I have all been up. Um, many of you know our family story. Not all of you know our family story. Um, I have two brothers. I have a biological brother, and then I have another brother. That's what I call him, and uh, he um, has, has never been officially adopted in my family. Uh, he's never been officially adopted because he, he really wasn't all in. Uh, he just sort of, sort of grew into our family, if that makes sense. If you can imagine, he was grafted in and just sort of grew in. As I was cleaning out some things at my mom and dad's house, I came across my senior year high school um, yearbook, and uh, there saw my brother Seth's. Uh, a little autograph in there, and he said, who knows, maybe someday I'll be 
renting a room at your dad's house and we didn't realize even at 18 years old that it wouldn't be renting a room that it would be his house we just didn't know um but uh through a uh, just a series of, of events in his life he needed a family and we needed somebody else apparently and um and so i have two brothers not just one um and uh, we we don't we don't share the same dna um but we gathered at a hospital this week, and we gathered around several places, and he was introduced in every place as son and brother and uncle. And his wife was introduced as daughter-in-law or sister-in-law or aunt. And his children were introduced as grandchildren and nephews and cousins. Because once he's been adopted in, nothing else matters. He's us. Folks, no matter where you've been or what you've done, the blood of Jesus was shed to make you a part of God's family. And as we gather around God's table this morning, if you're a child of God, if you've given your life to Jesus and you belong to Christ as a Christian, then I want you to know that the Lord's table is for you. But there are some of you here today, no doubt, who have never been saved. You've never experienced what it is to follow Christ in salvation. If that's you today... I would urge you not to take the Lord's table today, but instead to take up Christ as your Lord and Savior. As our kids come in, if our deacons would come forward.